Let's uh, open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful again that we have another opportunity to be together and go to your word to give us the spiritual food that we need. We thank you that so far in the conference, all that has been given, we thank you for those who have yielded their lives to you so they could be used in such a manner to break the word and that we can be fed. We pray that as we look at your word that you'd give us what you want us to know, um, that it would not be my words, but it would be um, your teaching from your word. We pray that you would bless us, and we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, Since I had the gracious opportunity to get to speak twice, I thought um, I would just pick a book, a letter from the Word, and start, and that way we can just pick up tomorrow uh, with the time that's left. Uh, So I want to be in 1 Peter to start with, so 1 Peter chapter 1. While you're turning there, um, as Brother Allen was mentioning, I actually was ordained in 1981, but I... um, just to give you a quick quick synopsis, somebody, our church that I was going to split uh, when I was in high school, and so my parents went to my grandmother's church, which is about maybe 10 miles away in another city, uh, not too far. So we went there, and this lady in the church said, I have some Bible study tapes in the basement if you'd like to listen to them. So I thought, okay. So I uh, started listening, and they were from, I didn't know the person. I found out who he was later, but his name was Gary Whipple. And it was on prophecy. So it started out Daniel chapter 2. I had no idea there was that much in the Bible. I'd been in church, you know, for about eight years at that point when our family was going to church regularly, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, but I never really heard the Bible taught. So um, I thought, just Daniel chapter 2, you know, the the statue, the gold head, the silver chest and arms, the, the, you know, bronze belly, and then down to the iron legs. And, the, you know, I had no idea about any of that and what it all meant. So I got excited. I went through the whole prophecy study. And then the next was on practical Christianity. So I learned that. So anyway, I just got excited uh, about the Word. And when I remember I was in Florida on vacation uh, in between my years at college, and I was just sitting in the service and thinking to myself, the preacher's preaching, and everybody's sitting there, but there's no food. I mean, there, there wasn't any spiritual food being given, and it was really bothering me. And the scripture that came to my mind was when our Lord asked Peter, do you love me? And he said, yeah, and he said, feed my sheep. And of course, you know, the words are different, what he was asking, and the word for love is different. And, but the basic idea, feed my sheep, was over and over. So I... Um, when I got back up to Ohio, where I was going to college, um, just in a little trailer park, I started a Bible study there, and so that's what we started doing. I remember telling this one uh, person at the study that the more we learn as Christians, the more we're, we're, we are responsible for, and she said, don't tell me anymore. <laughs> she didn't want to know anymore, but I just think, to me, it's exciting as a pastor to come to this type of conference and be with other people who are like-minded to believe the kingdom truths, understand salvation of the soul, and it's uplifting and it's inspiring, and so it's very exciting to be here. Uh, so First Peter chapter 1, and as it is custom in the letters as they were writing, they put their name at the beginning. Usually when we write a letter, you know, uh, we put who it's from, it's at the bottom, but uh, if we even write formal letters anymore with the age of technology. But uh, So Peter's name is at the beginning. 
as we know, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And I'll just give you a little story about that scripture. When I was in seminary, um, uh, there was a, several of the students kept asking me, uh, some of my, other, my fellow students were asking me, well, how, how do you, can you prove the Bible is the word of God? And so I went to 2 Timothy 3.16. I said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And I said, well, you can't use the scripture to prove the scripture is the word of God. And I thought, well, then I have no reason to even speak to you. I thought, if they're not going to accept the word of God as the word of God, then it's all pointless. So I thought about when Jesus was talking about cast your pearls before the swine. If they weren't going to value, these are seminary students studying to be pastors, but if they weren't going to value the word of God as precious as it is, it would be like throwing pearls in the, you know, the pigs would just stomp around it in the mud. They wouldn't. So anyway, it was a difficult time at seminary because of that. But uh, So Peter is the human author. God is inspiring him to write. An apostle of Jesus Christ. So we know the apostles were directly appointed. Um, you know, somebody can't... Somebody couldn't appoint themselves an apostle, so Peter is one of the apostles. We know that uh, they tried after Judas to just cast some lots and pick one, (laughs) but we know that it was Paul who was appointed uh, later, so we know they have to be appointed, and it was directly appointed by Jesus Christ too, as we know uh, he was in the desert with them according to Galatians. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers that were, in a sense, not what we would think of the word stranger, but foreigners, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And I just want to pause because some people might read that and say, well, those are a bunch of people a long time ago, and they're not alive anymore, so what does that have to do with us? It's like most of the scriptures. Not all scripture, of course, is written to us, but it's all for us. That same scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by God and is profitable for doctrine and so forth. It's all for us. I give an example of that um, is God told Noah to build an ark. Well, we study that, and there's types and all of that as we're studying, so it's all for us, but he didn't tell each of us individually to go out and build an ark. So anyway, this this is all for us as we're studying this morning because these are believers he's writing to. Verse 2, elect, those are the chosen, the believers, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, that's a whole other sermon if we wanted to do it. But as you understand, God's foreknowledge. Through sanctification of the Spirit. I want to pause there a moment. Uh, we've heard that word several in several people speaking today. As we know, there are the three tenses of salvation, the, pre- the uh, past, present, and future. Um, we know that the we could talk about justification, sanctification, and glorification. So some of them... In a sense, we could talk about justification. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, I am being saved over the power of sin, although that one is, we might be or might not be, depending on whether we're working in that as a Christian. So sanctification, we won't know until we get to the judgment seat of Christ and whether we hear well done or not. But sanctification is a process in the Christian life. And then glorification, I will be saved from the presence of sin. And that, when we get our new bodies. So in any case, sanctification, though, in a sense, first, when we trusted in Christ as our Savior, we were, in a sense, sanctified, that is, set apart from the world because we're now believers. But sanctification is a continual process in our Christian lives, or hopefully is, if we're studying, uh, to be more set apart. So through sanctification of the Spirit, 
unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, as we know, specifically to the ones he's writing, I think it's important that he's giving reference to things that they're familiar with related to the Jewish tradition of the Old Testament and the sprinkling of the blood and all the things they were under, understood under the law. But this is the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ and then his customary grace to you and peace, just as Paul always gives, but always grace and then peace because you can't have the peace without first having God's grace. So grace to you and peace be multiplied. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, I pause there too because, you know, we just read that and think, oh, yeah. But think about a lot of people then who were Jewish who believed in the same God, but they didn't believe Jesus was the Christ. So in most of the letters, you'll see God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's being emphasized because it's not just enough to believe in God the Father. We have to believe in his Son. Uh, So it's God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who according, and I know the King James says which, sometimes I'm reading in more modern English, but I've got the King James in front of me, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to, uh, and then the King James says lively, living, uh, maybe a better translation, to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, of course, that's already been uh, talked about, uh, as some people have been teaching today. We know this hope, this is not as some people think the word, uh, some people look up definitions of things and and they go by the dictionary instead of, uh, they get some kind of idea of something that they don't understand what the hope is. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the way we study the word is to compare spiritual things with spiritual. So if I want to know what something means, I can look it up in the word, see where it's used elsewhere, rather than go into a dictionary or getting a definition from, from somewhere. But for instance, this is not hoping that we get to be saved. The hope has to do with whether we hear well done at the, at the judgment seat. But this is a living hope. Um, so anyway, based on that, comparing spiritual things with spiritual... Um, I thought about those scriptures as Brian read both of them today when he was teaching out of Colossians and Philippians and, and Ephesians, excuse me. And they're, they're almost word for word part of them. And the thing that, that's in a whole other study, but so I won't get into that now. But I just love how they coincide perfectly together. All right, let's go on, uh, going on in verse 3 or verse 4 now. To an inheritance incorruptible. Now, of course, we know the inheritance, of course, that we're heirs, and that was part of the message. Uh, we got sons, and then the firstborn sons who get to uh, have the inheritance. Uh, the rest are what we call disinherited. Uh, if we've been found unfaithful at the judgment seat of Christ, then we don't get the inheritance that's ours. It's ours because we're his children, but we can be disinherited and not get it. So this is to an inheritance that's incorruptible. It's not like an inheritance you get here, because when you die, you can't take anything with you. This is incorruptible. Undefiled, that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So um, we already know we're saved as far as salvation of the Spirit. We already know we're going to heaven. Uh, that was because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross by grace. So he gave his life. We believed it. That was applied for us. And so now we have that. This is salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. At the judgment seat of Christ, the salvation of the soul, that's when we find out 
if we get that. Verse 6, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations or testing. So that, again, was part of the messages we heard today. So these testings that we go through in life. Verse 7, that the trial of your faith, that's what's going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ. That's what's going to be. The testing is actually going on now. It's like at the judgment seat, at the baptism of fire, as the works go through and we find out what remains. It's like, if you want to put it in the sense of, since I taught school for 30 years, I'm retired last year, it's like it's when we get our report cards. It's when we find out, ultimately, did we pass? Because often throughout our Christian lives, we fail. We get a a grade of F because we didn't do what we were supposed to or we did something we weren't supposed to. But ultimately, as Christians, we find out then, overall, did we pass in that sense? Uh, And that's what this, this trial of your faith. So the testing is going on now throughout our Christian lives. At the judgment seat, we find out the results. The trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes. So that's something they were familiar with if they put gold, silver, and so forth. In the fire, the impurities would burn off, would leave only the pure gold or the pure silver. So this is much more precious than of the things we think on our earth that are precious, that are valuable. Gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So when his appearing is the return, not the rapture, but at the end of the tribulation, when he comes to set up the kingdom, and that's when we'll know, because the the judgment seat will be over, and we'll know if we um, get to reign with him in the millennial kingdom. So here we see it, the appearing. And the word glory, another way to think of glory, I think of the word majesty, because that's when he'll take the office of king, He's still fulfilling, Jesus Christ is still fulfilling the office of high priest. He came, as we could talk about, prophet, now he's priest, and the office of king he will take. Uh, We have the same type when we look back to in the scripture with Saul and David. David didn't become king until Saul was no longer king. And right now, that's the same thing, is Jesus won't become king until Satan is taken down. So that is when he sets up the kingdom uh, at the end of the tribulation. So it's the same type as in the Old Testament. So here we see, verse 8, Whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith. So uh, another word way to look at that word end is the goal, G. Uh, O-A-L, the goal. What is the purpose of our faith? What is the end result that we want to be of our faith? And it says it right here, the salvation of your souls. So for people that understand their salvation, the spirit, salvation, the soul, and salvation of the body, we understand this is not talking about being saved and going to heaven. It's not salvation of the spirit. It's salvation of the soul. So this is talking about the inheritance. It's talking about ruling and reigning with Christ when he sets up the kingdom. That is the end of the faith. That is the goal of our faith. Verse 10. And this, we already saw these scriptures, but we'll do them again. It doesn't hurt us. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. Think about, look at the Old Testament prophets. For instance, Isaiah. And he writes, For unto us a child is born, unto us the son is given. 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder. It's in the same verse. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. All right, we could go on in that scripture. But just that alone, it jumps in the same verse and verses that we know were added later. So we don't have to worry about that. But it just makes a clear point. He's prophesying about the first coming, and then it jumps to the second coming 2,000 years later, but it's in the same verse there when he's prophesying. Um, So a lot of things in the scripture the prophets didn't quite get. They didn't understand. They didn't get it all. Hebrews brings out a lot more about that. So they inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify. So the Spirit was telling the prophets what it was all inspired by God, told the prophets what to write. We have all of this. It's there, and they didn't even see all of what they were prophesying about. That's what they're saying. When it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ, in Isaiah, he prophesied about that too. The sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So even though, yes, Jesus Christ suffered and he was obedient to, to death, even the death of the cross, we know. But as the scripture was read in, in Hebrews today, in Hebrews chapter 12, the, in the, for the joy that was set before him. So they have been prophesied of this glory that should follow. But as we know, in a sense, looking at from our standpoint, the kingdom was postponed for 2,000 years. And the glory will follow as the kingdom has set up his majesty when he becomes king. So let's look on in verse 12. Unto whom it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they did minister the things, which are now reported to you by those who have preached the gospel to you with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into, even the angels. Verse 13, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. When we think of uh, when they would prepare for something in the scripture, we see this phrase, gird up your loins. Paul talked about putting on the whole armor of God, God, and he talks about girding the loins. But here, it's the loins of your mind. In other words, talking about preparation. So gird up the loins of your mind to be sober, meaning, of course, sober-minded, which could include other things that could cause our minds not to be uh, clear-minded or sober, but focused, focused. Um, You know, in the model prayer that Jesus gave, it says, thy kingdom come, we're to pray for his kingdom. That's to be focused on it. You know, for us, um, when we talk about the seventh day, it's the day of rest, it's the millennial kingdom. For us, that's being focused on the return of Christ and setting up the kingdom, the day of rest. Focused, sober, and hope to the end. So for those who don't understand, this is like hoping they get to go to heaven. They don't understand. This is not what the hope is. But hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what we find out when he returns whether we get to be part of the kingdom, to rule with him. Verse 14, as obedient children, this is what we should do as Christians, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. So he's talking about when you weren't a believer and there were certain things in your life that weren't appropriate. Those things need to change, need to fashion them differently, make make it different. Verse 15, but as he which hath called you is holy, so ye be, so be ye holy in all manner, and the old English uses the word conversation, it means behavior. So just as he is holy or set apart, 
he causes us, he calls us as believers to be that. Verse 16, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without respect of persons judges you according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. We've got to pause. I'm reading quickly because it's, it's like a lot in there. But let's look at the first part again. First of all, he's no respecter of persons. So God doesn't put favor on one more than the other. So when we get to the judgment seat of Christ and all of us are believers are being judged according to our works, it won't matter how much money we had or the size of the church we pastored or 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 whether we were male or female or whether we owned a business or didn't own a business or we worked at a business. All the things that we think of in this life that are important, those aren't a factor. He's no respecter of persons. No one will be favored over another. When we are judged, we'll be judged according to our works, and we are responsible for what he gave us to do. And he's given each of us different things. He's given us different abilities So if I don't use what God gave me, I have to answer for that. And each of us have to answer if we don't use what God has given us to do. So he's no respecter of persons. Going on to verse 17. So he judges according to every man's work. That's each individually. Not, um, you know, that you somehow get the blessings of someone else. because It's just each individually. We're responsible each for our own Christian life, what we're doing, whether our works are his works or whether they're works that don't count because they're our own works. That's another word is self-righteousness. And we talked, I think I talked about this last year. Sometimes we, we talk about good and bad things, but there are, two, there are examples of two good things. If I use the exact same thing, let's say two Christians, one Christian decides they want to take, maybe they have abundance, they want to take of that abundance and give to some organization, charitable organization, to help them out. And the other Christian wants to do the same thing. The one wants to make sure everybody knows about it. They want to make sure it's published, it's on television, that their name, they donated so much money to this charitable organization. The other Christian just does it. So there are two, there's, are two good things. They're exact same thing. There's nothing bad about the person who wanted to be recognized, but as Christians... That Christian already got their reward when they're recognized. So it's stuff that we let God do through us, not stuff that we're doing for our own uh, to be glorified here and to get gratification here. So judges, according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. You know, you think about it, a lot of Christians don't understand what this fear is, I don't, I don't believe. Um, a lot of Christians, they're not in church anywhere. Uh, sadly, as we know, according to the book of Revelation, we're in the latest in church period, so most of the churches, it's not anything spiritual anyway. It's by that description, they don't even know they're spiritually dead. It's a social place where people come together to do things. A lot of churches are trying to figure out, how do we get more people in the church? So they build a place where there's a basketball court because they figure, well, you know, maybe more people will come because we've got a basketball court or a bowling alley or a restaurant. I went to, when I was in seminary, I went to a church. I visited there a few times anyway. They had 7,000 members, so it wasn't a problem with having people. But they had their own restaurant. They had their own clothing store. They had a bowling alley. It was not that there's anything wrong with all that stuff, but that stuff was more important than anything spiritual. And the church should be about Christians being fed spiritually. The social stuff 
you know, you could get that somewhere else. You can go to a bowling alley and not be at a church, and you can go to a restaurant and not be in a church. But there are a lot of people, I remember one time in church, I was preaching about that, and this member asked me, she said, I, I thought the purpose of church was for socializing. <laughs> and I don't think she quite understood my point, but I was saying, of course, it's more than just coming together to say hi to everybody. You know, It's getting in the Word and fellowshipping in the Word. So this fear, sojourning, that it means our daily lives living, what is this fear? Um, to know that if we don't do what we're supposed to do, we're going to answer for that at the judgment seat of Christ. Um, if you'll hold your place in Peter, let's just back up two uh, letters to Hebrews just for a second, and we'll look at this in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, let's look at verse 26, Hebrews ten twenty-six. For if we sin willfully... I've heard a lot of people to try to figure out what that means. Um, most of our sins are willful, by the way, as far as that we we choose to do it. I know there's sins that we that we maybe offend somebody we don't know we did it. Um, unaware of those. Thankfully, in First John one nine, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there are some things we're not aware of. You can't confess something you're not aware of. But what is this? If we sin willfully. Um, let's say in our Christian lives, God has pointed out to us in the word that something is not right, that it shouldn't be done, or something we need to do, because there's sins of omission, things that we should do that we don't. So let's say God, for instance, let's use this example, because in the previous verse it's talking about forsake not your, uh, the assembling of yourselves together. So let's say a Christian finds out that the word is telling them they need to assemble together, they need to be in church. And they're convicted of that. Now, if that Christian decides to continue not assembling together, they've, they've just quit going. They're not going anywhere. They're not getting any fellowship anywhere. Then that would be what I believe this definition, sinning willfully. They're deciding, they're, they're a carnal Christian deciding, you know, leave me alone, God. You tell me I need to fellowship together, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do my own thing. So if we sin willfully, here's what it says, after that we receive the knowledge of the truth. That is, it's been pointed out to us. Either we found it in the Word or somebody told us we need to be in church and we're deciding not to. There remains no more sacrifice of sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. That's talking about the judgment seat. If, if a Christian decides to be carnal and they're going to willfully continue doing whatever it is they're doing despite the fact they know they're not supposed to, this is what they have to look forward to. In any of us in the same position, of course, the same thing. There remains no more sacrifice of sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. So... Um, just thought I'd bring that out about the fear. Now, coming back to First Peter. Now, we don't have to be afraid that we're going to get there and God's going to say, oh, you're no longer my child. That's not going to happen. We're his children, and we're going to always be his children. That's because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That has been done. It's completed. Nothing can change that, thankfully. So that's not what the fear is, but Romans talks about it too in chapter 12. So, but this is a fear, and I... I I think of this too, is a 
I understand this because I feared my father growing up. If we did something wrong, we knew there was going to be consequences, let's say. Um, And so I understood what the fear of my father meant. And that helped me understand the fear of God. Because if your parents care for you, they're going to make sure they not only teach you what you did was wrong, but teach you what you should have done instead, what would have been the right thing to do. And knowing that there's going to be consequences, I feared that. Um, And so I understand, then I I think what this means of the judgment seat, even more so with God, if we don't do what we're supposed to do. Verse 18. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, that is your behavior in your life before, received by the tradition from your fathers, um, that's the ancestors he's talking about, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So he's talking about you were redeemed not by corruptible things, you were redeemed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before, that is ahead of time, before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him, still speaking of Jesus Christ, do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and your hope might be in God. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. He's talking to us as believers. He's not talking about, this isn't to lost people telling them what they do to get, get saved. This is to us as Christians. Purify your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit to the unfeigned love of all the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. So he's talking about what we should do as Christians, this loving one another. Verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. For all flesh, this is from Isaiah 40, all flesh is like grass. He's given this example of our lives, our mortal lives here. It's like grass. And all the glory of man is like the flower of the grass. So it's not just literal grass, but I always think of dandelions. A lot of people think, oh, they don't like those ugly dandelions. I don't know why. I love the color green and the color yellow um, together. I, I think God designed the world with, with colors, of course. And to me, some people think dandelions are just weeds, but that yellow flower is so beautiful against the green grass. But anyway, that's, that's a, <laughs> has nothing to do with the scripture. <laughs> Glory of man to the flower is the grass. The grass withers... And the flower thereof falls away. That's what happens. In our mortal lives here on life, we're we're just like the grass and it grows up and it dies and it's gone. That doesn't sound very exciting. Verse 25. But the word of the Lord endures forever. It's comparing the difference. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached to you. So there's a lot of things that last a short time and they're over. But the word of God is forever. Chapter 2. Are we done? Okay. Wherefore, laying aside all malice. This laying aside is a little stronger in the Greek. You know, when I think of laying aside, you think, okay, you take there and you lay it aside. Um, I think, from my understanding in the Greek, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but it's a little more forceful, 
um, this is an in intentionally having something to work on this as Christians, to, to putting it aside and, 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 and intentionally. So the word wherefore is connecting all that we've just read. So as Christians now laying aside all malice and all guile. Now, is this a one-time thing? Do we lay aside this and we don't ever have to worry about it again? No, because we're human and that, you know, our human nature gets in there, which is you could call the sin nature or um, our old nature, whichever term you want to use, but it still gets in the way. So this is something we have to work at continuously as Christians, making sure we're laying aside all malice, not just part of it and save the part that we think is legitimate, and all guile and all hypocrisies. You know, that's one of the things Jesus talked a lot about, and he pointed out the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. He, used, he talked about their hypocrisy a lot, um, things that they, you know, they did things. They said, well, we can't honor our mother and father, uh, which, by the way, I know you've studied this and know that means it was the responsibility to take care of the parents when they were no longer able to take care of themselves. The opposite of that, to curse your parents, was to not take care of them at that point. But they would use examples, say, well, I can't do that because I made a pledge to the church, at that point the synagogue, and so I, my money's obligated to that, so I can't help my parents, um, whatever. But they would take their own traditions and use those as examples um, or reasons they would give as to why they couldn't carry out what God taught. But the word hypocrisy means it's like play acting. It's pretending. It's pretending to be something. Now, God knows whether we're spiritual or carnal. He knows each of us individually. If we have dedicated our lives to him and, you know, when we do sin, we confess our sin, we get back in his will and we're allowing him to use us. And, or he knows if we're carnal, we're just living our lives for ourselves and we could care less about what God wants. But there are a lot of people, they could be in church every service and only God knows for sure that person could be just putting on a, a mask, play acting. So hypocrisy. One of the things he says laying aside hypocrisies, this play acting, and envies. Uh, when we look in 1 Corinthians, Paul talked about that in chapter 3, and it starts with envies, remember, then it goes to strife and then division. So divisions start with envy, and envy something in emotion in the mind. That's where it starts. It didn't just, you know, if, if a church divides, it didn't just didn't divide. Somewhere in somebody's mind, there was envy, and then they stirred things up, and it became strife, and then there are divisions. So, laying aside this, and evil, all evil speakings. You know, uh, there's a lot about this in the Bible. There's evil speakings, evil communication. Um, a lot of people think, well, that's using bad words. But my comparing spiritual things with spiritual, the best I can understand um, not that we shouldn't use language, it's not appropriate, but it's when we're saying something with the intent to tear someone else down, that's evil speakings. Um, you, the purpose of saying it would be to hurt someone else, to harm them, to somehow tear that other believer down. We need to lay aside all of that as Christians, make sure that's out of there. Verse 2, as newborn babes... Desire the sincere milk of the word. All right, that's where it starts with the milk. All of us have studied this before. But newborn babes, that's what they want. Uh, first of all, if you take a newborn baby 
and you try to give it a steak, it's going to choke. It doesn't have the means. It's not mature enough. It doesn't have teeth. It can't chew the steak. So if a parent would take a newborn baby and give it steak, uh, either something wrong with the parent in their mind, obviously something obviously major wrong, or their intent is to harm the baby because you can't do that. It's got to start with the milk. But he says, first, like newborn babes, as Christians, we should desire the sincere milk of the word. Now he's talking about the word. So holding your place here, let's go to Hebrews 5. And we've already been there today too, but that's okay. Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5. And let's start. I guess we'll start in verse 10. Because um, most of you have studied this, but just start there. Called of God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So, what Paul, and I believe Hebrews were written by Paul, and some people don't, so I don't really care because it's <laughs> inspired by God, so that part doesn't matter. But anyway, here we see called of God, a high priest. Now, this is Melchizedek, after the order of Melchizedek. It's interesting because he was both a priest and a king, and this is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what he's talking about. Paul said it's hard to explain that, though. It was hard to explain it. So let's look going on in chapter 5, verse 11. Of whom, Melchizedek, and what it's a type of, we have many things to say and hard to be uttered. In other words, it's difficult to explain. Why? Seeing you are dull of hearing. Now, that's not, that's not a flattering thing to say. I would say dull of hearing, you could compare it to... Um, very little attention span, which is appropriate for a baby, right, and young infants. Uh, for the 30 years I taught school, the last 27 and a half years I was in elementary school teaching from three-year-olds through fifth grade. The younger the child, the shorter their attention span is, and that's normal. It's not normal for a three-year-old, if you were to bring them into this service and expect them to sit three hours and, and pay attention. So um, they have a shorter attention span. But... I always think about that when, when people say, well, the sermon shouldn't be more than 20 minutes. Well, a lot of sermons that I heard growing up, <laughs> um, the preacher had already finished what they were going to say in five minutes, and the rest was just telling stories or something anyway. And most people come to church and figure out how they could daydream or pass the time. I remember in the church, I remember sitting in church and there were tiles like up on the ceiling, and I would count how many tiles there were. And the carpet was multicolored, and I'd stare at the carpet. I did all kinds of things the past time. It wasn't until I started growing in the Word I realized they weren't preaching anything anyway. I wasn't being fed. But, but, but people that say that, that the sermon should be short, okay? Yet they'll go to a movie that's two and a half hours long and won't, even, won't budge, won't get up. So to me, it's what we're interested in. As Christians, if we're interested in the Word, 20 minutes goes by really fast. So I know you all agree. So let's look at verse 11. So this is dull of hearing... This is not appropriate if we've been a Christian for a while and we're still dull of hearing. All right, verse 12. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers. Now that's telling us, you know, somebody say, well, that isn't a talent God gave me. Well, God didn't give us all the same talents. That's true. But at some point, you should be able to share with someone else something you've learned in the Word. My grandmother was saying, well, I can't, I can't learn anything. I can't learn any scriptures. And I said, I bet you already know scriptures. And, you know, I'd talk to her and this is... She passed a long time ago, but I remember having these conversations with her. And when I would talk to her, and then she'd realize, well, yes, I do. And she ended up 
and the last 10 years of her life teaching a Bible study in the apartment that she lived. So she grew quite a bit. But when for the time you ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. The word oracles are the word of God. There's a lot of Christians, it's like they still need to go over these first things in the word. And are become such as have need of milk. So in, it seems like it's almost contradicting in Peter, but it's not. It's saying first... We need to desire them since they are milk of the word. This is saying as we grow as Christians, there should be a point that we grow from the milk to the solid food, as it's called the meat. It says, it become our such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. There's something wrong if a person is a full-grown adult and they're still sucking on a bottle. We would look at that and say, there's something wrong with that. We wouldn't get our nourishment just getting our food that way. So, but spiritually speaking, if, if, we, if you could look out at a congregation and God gave us the vision to see, thankfully he doesn't do that because that would be um, too much, but to see, it would be like seeing uh, old, uh, maybe people that lived a long, long time, 90-some years, and sitting there with a, a bottle and a pair, you know, you know, just looking like a little baby, just older. So if you can imagine. But verse 13, for everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness because he's a babe. So it's saying we can't continue staying a babe, but in First Peter it's saying we should desire, and we'll get back to that in a moment, like a babe. But here it says we're not to continue like that. There's something wrong. Strong meat that is solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is a person who's you know, mature enough to eat solid food. Th- those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. That's good and bad. That is the teaching. When we've grown enough, you can listen to the radio or the television or whoever the preacher is or a book you open up. You should be able to discern whether that teaching is according to the word of God or not. That tells whether you're maturing in the word of God. If, if you could go to seven different churches wherever you live and you couldn't tell any difference between any preacher in those seven churches, it's probably not much discerning going on. But if you can tell the difference, what they're preaching, then it shows that you're growing. Okay, coming back to Peter, First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. All right, verse 2. As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So we need to grow. We need that nourishment. We need to desire it. If so be that ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Um, I shouldn't have left Hebrews already, but think back in your mind. If, if, if you're like me, I can see it on the page. So Hebrews chapter 6 goes on. Remember it says, and it have tasted of the good word of God. So if you want to sometime go back and read that. So that's what that's talking about. And it talks about and the, when it says the powers of the world to come, the word world is age. The powers of the age to come. That's talking about those who will rule in the coming age. If you read that in Hebrews 6, that's talking about those who will rule and reign with Christ. All right, verse 4. To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as living stones, or lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. All right, so in the Old Testament, they offered up literal sacrifices, but these are spiritual sacrifices. So what's that talking about? 
Uh, if you hold your place here a moment, we'll go to Romans 12. Most of you probably have that memorized, but Romans 12. Romans chapter 12. Verse 1, Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. So he's talking to believers. By the way, I remember a church in Florida that I was talking to some people who were members of a church in Florida that their pastor decided uh, they got one of those Bibles that was not gender specific because they didn't think God should be only referred to as a male or 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 just as a king, so they would use the word ruler instead of king, and it was just weird. So they so it make sure to say brothers and sisters, like as though if you said brothers, it was excluding female Christians. <laughs> I don't get that, but anyway. So when it says brethren, it's talking about with God, there's neither male nor female. It's talking about believers here. Okay, so I beseech you, he's begging, brethren, by the mercies of God. That you, that's us as Christians, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now think about that, because that doesn't make any sense. If you look at the Old Testament and you see a sacrifice, you have to kill the sacrifice. So how do you present our bodies a living sacrifice? It means just what it means. We have to, as it says also in Romans, mortify the deeds of the flesh. We have to kill ourself, in a sense, kill those desires that are contrary to God. And they are contrary to God so that we can allow God to use us. So in order to be something that God can use, a vessel that he can use, we have to get ourselves out of the way. And that's how we do that. We present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, that's set apart. The word acceptable here is a hyphenated word you could translate from the Greek, or translated from the Greek meaning well-pleasing. So acceptable means well-pleasing to God which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, the world we're living in. Um, we can easily see that. To conform to this world is not a good idea for a Christian. But be transformed. So that word is changing. Uh, just like the, the caterpillar you know, goes through that process of transformation and they become the butterfly. There needs to be a transforming in the Christian life. A lot of Christians aren't transforming they got saved, and then something happened. That's it. I, I see a lot of churches that emphasize making sure people get saved. So the sermons are all on how to get saved, which is, to me, a waste of time because then the Christians aren't growing, and the people listening are already saved people. So they're hearing messages over and over about how to get saved, and there aren't any lost people to preach the message to, so nobody's getting saved. But anyway, but once a person is saved... If they don't grow, they're probably not going to last very long. Something's going to happen. They're going to leave the church. They're not going to be interested in it more because they hadn't grown any. So here it says, be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our minds have to be renewed. There has to be new thinking. So as Christians, that process of sanctification, this process of transformation, hopefully is still going on. We're still in the Word. We're still transforming. We're still getting our minds renewed. That ye may prove what is that good and acceptable, that means well-pleasing and perfect will of God. Coming back to First Peter chapter 2. So, verse 5, Ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable. Again, that's well-pleasing to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, this is quoted from Isaiah 28, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, Chief would mean the top. And by the way, I did a, when I was in seminary, I did a paper on this. Um, 
Because I believe the holy city will be in the shape of a pyramid. Um, the reason is because it's 1,500 square miles wide, long, and high, and there's only two dimensions that can fit that, a pyramid or a cube. And it's because Jesus is the chief cornerstone. There's, the only way you can be a top stone and a cornerstone is if you have a pyramid. But anyway, that's another message. Okay, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, who believe he is precious, but to them who are disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same has been made the head of the corner, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. To those who stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that's what it's describing in his ad. That's what we should be doing is showing forth. It says, show forth the praises of him who has called us out of that darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, which in time past were not a people. As you look back, um, you know, in this time when Peter was writing this, um, the Gentiles, the gospel didn't come to them. It was for when Jesus sent out the, the 12 two by two, he said, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They could only go to Israelites because the gospel wasn't to us yet. So, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust. So again, we get more instruction. We found out at the beginning of chapter 2, things to do as Christians. Lay aside all malice and guile and hypocrisies and envies and evil speakings. Here it says, abstain from fleshly lust. There are things that the flesh desires. It's a good idea as Christians to abstain. And it says why? Which war against the soul. There's that battle going on. If you think about it, though, a carnal Christian, there's no battle going on. Um, you could say that it's the spirit and the soul battling over the body, which gets control. The spirit is God, the Holy Spirit. The soul is ourself. So we got spirit, which is God consciousness, and the soul, which is self-consciousness. Which one gets control? It's up to us. We, we get to decide whether we allow the Lord Jesus Christ to have control, the Holy Spirit, or whether we say no to God and say yes to self. So it's a, but carnal Christians are just saying no to God. And they're just going about, you know, everything is whatever makes them feel good or whatever doing about life. There's no consideration of God. God, what, what would you like me to do? Help me make this decision. Guide me in it. Um, it's just living every day, getting up, doing what every day, and they go through the motions. A lot of Christians are doing that. Uh, that's why Jesus keeps saying many are called, but few are chosen. There's a lot of Christians who are just blindly stumbling through life and have no idea what's in the word. So it causes us, if we don't abstain from these fleshly lusts, it, it, it says a war against the soul. Having your conversation, that is your behavior, honest among the Gentiles. So he was saying to these particular um, uh, new Christians that he's writing to that that's a good thing to be presented that way. That whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. 
So as long as we're doing what we're supposed to as Christians, they can say bad things about us, but it'll be held against them. Verse 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. What's that mean? It means that if there's laws that are in wherever we live, God is telling us to submit ourselves to those laws. Um, if it's, it's illegal to um, go over the speed limit and we get a speeding ticket, it's because we didn't follow the law. Um, they're obviously there for you know, our safety, but these, that's just one example of laws. But he tells us to submit ourselves to those, whether it be to the king as supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, that is, you know, correcting those who have done wrong, or for the praise of those who do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So we should lead by that example. Verse 16, as free as not using your liberty as a cloak of maliciousness. Um, You know, I think about there are churches that misunderstand what grace means. This is in the Bible too. You can talk about and say, okay, I'm a Christian now, so I'm not under the law. I can do whatever I want to. It's sort of like the doctor on Balaam um, was you tell the Israelites, you know, you're, you're God's chosen earthly people. You can do whatever you want to. You're still going to be his chosen earthly people. Well, yes, that's partly true. And as Christians, yes, we can do whatever we want to. There are going to be consequences if we do that. Uh, it's not going to change that we're a believer. We're still going to be saved, but it will affect what happens to us at the judgment seat. And there are consequences in this life as well. But here it says, not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness. Um, you know, another word we could talk about in the scripture is lasciviousness, which is licentiousness. It, the way I like to look at that word is a license to sin. Some people think they misunderstand grace, the fact that we're not under the law and that we're under grace, that that gives us a license to sin. No, it gives us a license to serve, not a license to sin. So they just must misunderstand. All right? But as the servants of God... So I'll read that again. As free, not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God, honor all men. You see the word is italicized, which means it's interpolated. means it's not in the Greek. The translators thought it would help us to put it in there. It doesn't really change anything. It just means all people. The Greek actually says honor all. Obviously, it doesn't mean things. It's talking about people. So honor all people. Love the brotherhood. So honor is respect. Respect everybody. Not everybody's a Christian, right? But you can still be respectful. You don't have to be hateful just because somebody doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can honor them. You can respect them. That's part of what we should do as Christians. Now, love the brotherhood. That means those who are Christians, they're in the family of God. It goes beyond honor. It says love. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. So now we talked about that fear earlier, understanding what that fear is. Fear God. Honor the king, that is whoever is, you know, some countries have kings, some have presidents, there are people that have to make decisions. We're told in the scripture to pray for them. It doesn't mean we always agree with whoever's in power, what what they're promoting publicly, but God, including when the tribulation happens, the Antichrist himself, all God is directing all that to happen. He will come to power when he's assassinated in the middle of the tribulation, he comes back to life, he'll become the beast. That's all directed by God. And the scriptures even prophesy that 
the beast, he won't call himself the beast, but this great world leader who, <laughs> who's doing all this thinks he's doing it of his own volition, his own will. He's doing everything, but it's really God directing. He's using that to carry out his plan and his purpose. So everybody in a place of authority is placed there by God and we're instructed as Christians to pray for them. So here it says honor. Okay, so this is where, because of time, we'll stop and Lord willing, we'll pick up tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Um, and we know that sometimes it might seem a lot or to some not much at all. But we know that we're all at different places in our lives as believers. Uh, some of us have been studying longer. Some of us are new to getting into the word and studying. But Father, we know that somehow in the word today, not just by me, but others that have been teaching, that there is food for us to grow. We pray that you'd help us to use it so we can be pleasing to you. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.